going to uh, test your, uh, your knowledge of the arts here. I have a picture to show you. I think I showed you one last time that uh, won the award for being the most expensive uh, picture ever. This one's not quite as expensive. Anybody knows what picture this is? Starry Night by Van Gogh, estimated of the value of about $100 million, considered one of his uh, best masterpieces. And I'll be frank with you. You know, I look at this picture and I don't see $100 million. <laughs> you know, I probably, even if I had it, I wouldn't choose to put it on my wall. Now, what that shows is I just don't appreciate art. It doesn't mean this is not a good art piece, right? The fact people are willing to pay a lot of money for it probably says something for its value. But I am not an art appreciator, and so I miss that value. Today we want to look at God's masterpiece, God's masterpiece. And uh, we want to look first at, uh, at missing the value of that masterpiece. Um, I think I mentioned to Andrew that I'm uh, from a Jewish background or Israeli background. Maybe one of these days, Bato will catch up and I'll share my testimony. But uh, people often ask me about Jewish people because I'm from a Jewish background. What is it that Jews believe makes them right with God? And the reason we ask it as Christians is we look to Christ as making us right with God. And uh, we understand, most of us understand, that in the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle. Maybe you could go ahead and show that picture. And, uh, and that was the way the Jews were supposed to be right with God during that time. They had to go through that particular process. They had to bring the sacrificed animals. When they sinned against God, they had to bring uh, an animal, and the animal would be sacrificed as payment for their sin. And there was a whole other bunch of stuff we'll get into later in this message that they had to be done to make uh, the, the Jews right with God. The problem is the temple, which was, so the tabernacle eventually gave way to the temple, which is simply a permanent larger version of the tabernacle, and that that was destroyed in 70 AD, 40 years after the Lord Jesus came. And uh, God made it very clear to the Jews that they were only allowed to offer the sacrificed animals in that particular spot. And so when the temple was destroyed, they were kind of, if you would, out of luck, right? Now there's nowhere for us to offer the sacrifice animals, and therefore the sacrifice had to stop, right? Then, uh, so that was kind of a problem for them. How are we going to be right with God now? Well, the, uh, the rabbis thought and thought about it, and eventually they came to a conclusion that God no longer requires the offerings of the temple in order to be right with God, now all he required was repentance, prayer, and what they called tzedakah, which simply means good works or righteous works. Right? They're saying we don't really need that anymore. We can just come to God through our good works. Right? It's basically what Jews believe today or what the rabbis teach today. And what I would call that is missing God's masterpiece. Right? The reason the temple was destroyed, I strongly believe, was God showed the way. Christ came. He was the fulfillment, and we'll look at that, of the picture, the fulfillment of what God designed as the way to be right with him. 
And uh, they had the opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus when he came. And God waited another 40 years, which is a typical period of testing that God has for the nation of Israel. You can go back and look in the Old Testament. 40 years were gone, and that's, God said, that's it. Okay, I'm going to close the door on this way uh, because it's no longer a valid way to come to me. Right? So as a result of them missing God's masterpiece, God closed it down and made it clear the only way left is his son. Because they were not willing to go that way, they came up with another way. Good works. We'll just do good works. God will receive us based on our good works. That's missing God's masterpiece. Now, we don't want to miss God's masterpiece. And the only way I know to not miss God's masterpiece, the value of it, is to look at very closely at what it means. And that's what we'll look at today. Appreciate God's masterpiece. Well, before we go there, before we go there, we'll go ahead and we'll read our passage. But before we read our passage, I've, I've challenged you uh, a few months ago to memorize the key verse of the book of Hebrew. We are studying the book of Hebrews. And I, anybody remembers what were the key verses? Hebrews 12, Yeah, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We've already had a number of individuals stand up and recite those, which was my challenge to the congregation. So I'll give it once again as an opportunity. Anybody wants to stand and recite Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Okay? And, and, and as, I, as I've been my, uh, my habit, when nobody stands up, we'll all do it together because that's how you memorize verses. I, I know no other way to memorize verses than saying them again and again and again. Now, saying them, you know, a couple of times a month will only get you so far. So if you really want to memorize it, I suggest you try to do it several times a day this week, and then next week there'll be another opportunity to say it. So look, would you put the verses up, and then uh, I'll, let, uh, I'll let you guys say it. That's it. It's that easy. Okay, just two verses. Next week, another opportunity. Um, now, for today's passage, Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. I'll go ahead and read that section first, and then we'll read 6 through 14 uh, when we finish going through these verses, 1 through 5. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Then, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. I'm going to do something the author does not do in the passage, and I'll speak about them in detail, okay, to try to appreciate God's masterpiece. So first, let's just go ahead and look at 
what really was there, what were the physical objects, and I will go back to that picture, if you would, of, uh, of the insides of the tabernacle. So in the, in the zoomed out picture before, you saw a tent in the middle of a courtyard, right? And now we're looking inside that tent to see special objects that God made there. Now remember, the Jews had priests, right? The, the sons of Aaron, they were the priests of Israel, and it was their responsibility to attend to the ministry of God. They were serving God on behalf of the children of Israel, and so providing Israel a way of being right with God. So they would have to go into this uh, tabernacle, and they would have to, uh, first of all, light, or rather maintain the lights of uh, what looks to me left. Yeah, for you, that's going to be left as well. Uh, that uh, candelabra or menorah. That was uh, the candlestick mentioned in this passage, and God said that they, they, their lights always have to be on, right? We, ha- we light, uh, when we go to my parents' house, they light uh, candles for Hanukkah, and uh, my son, Ben, wants to blow them out, right? That's what you do with candles, right? You blow- you're not supposed to blow them out. You let them burn all the way down. And the, uh, Hanu- the Shabbat candle for the, for the Shabbat, they just last for one night, if that. But these were supposed to be on 24-7. Never put them out. Right? That was the job of the priests to make sure there was always enough oil to keep them burning. Then on the right hand of that, there's a table. And on the table, there's what they call the showbread. And uh, I believe every week, he was supposed to come with fresh loaves, and uh, 12 loaves, and put them on that table. And then at the end of the week, uh, he eats them, the priest does, and he puts another set of 12 loaves on them. So there's always supposed to be bread there before the Lord. Then in the picture you see the, uh, uh, the uh, altar of incense, which is not mentioned by the author for the book of uh, the, the epistle to the Hebrews. Instead, he mentions a golden uh, censer, which would be a different object, which is not shown in that picture. It would be just simply like a pen, a golden pen, which was apparently, uh, according to this passage, placed inside the Holy of Holies. So now we're on the other side of the curtain. And the purpose of that golden pan was once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies just once a year. And when he did, he had to come with blood, but he also had to come with incense. And he had to put that incense, burn that before the Lord. So he had, uh, he had uh, in this pan, he was carrying this golden censer. He would have some live coals from the altar of sacrifice, which was the one outside, and as he goes in there, he would put incense on it, and the incense would create immediately a cloud of, of, of sweet-smelling aroma, which was actually designed as a protection for the priest. If the priest was not to do it, he would die entering the presence of God. Okay, so that was the golden incense, descri- sorry, censer described in this passage. And then you see the Ark of the Covenant there, and we can zoom in on the next picture, shows what the was inside the Ark of the Covenant. You had uh, three objects, actually four, but uh, uh, the first one mentioned here is the golden pot that had the manna. So as the children of Israel went out of Egypt, they got to the desert, and in the desert there's lots of food growing up all over the place, right? No, there's no food at all. So the children of Israel cry out to God, and God in his mercy provides them with food, manna. Every day, manna comes down and rests on the ground, and the children of Israel would come and gather it. 
And God said, go ahead and take some of it, put it in a pot as a memorial for the children of Israel. So they'll remember I fed them in the desert, in the wilderness. Two million people, 40 years, no problem, I can do it. Right? This was kind of the evidence of it, as it was sitting there in the Ark of the Covenant. Then you had Aaron's rod that budded, and that was, a, uh, again, kind of a memorial. Uh, as they were going through the wilderness, some of the Jews felt, you know what, why do we have to listen to Aaron? Why do we have to listen to Moses? You know, we're all God's people. And, and God said, okay, let's, let's, let's put it away once for all. Let the leader of each tribe bring to me a rod and lay it before the Lord. Right? Come the next day and see what happened. They came back the next day. The rod of Aaron, the leader of the tribe of Levi, budded. It had flowers. Now, this was a dead piece of wood, but God made it come alive. And it had not just buds, it actually had mature almond fruit, okay, in one night. Only God can do that. But that was to show that, you know, the tribe of Aaron was God's, the tribe of Levi, and Aaron specifically, the priest, that was God's way. They had to follow them. They had to let them serve God in tabernacle, and through that ministry, approach God, right? And then finally, we have the two tablets of the covenanter. And if you remember, when they got to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the top, and then God writes on two tablets of stone with his own finger the Ten Commandments. Right? That was kind of, if you would, the foundation of God's law for the children of Israel. And that was to be put in there to, again, kind of a reminder of that covenant. And then finally, in the passage, we have mentioned the cherubim of glory. If you can tell, right on top of the, um, of the Ark of the Covenant, there's a lid. And on that lid, there's uh, two cherubim or angels that have their wings kind of reaching forward there, right? And, uh, and then uh, what they call the mercy seat is literally the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so now we've seen it. What does it all mean? How can we appreciate it? So let's go back to the beginning and, and think about the lamp. So what does the lamp do? If you want to go ahead and back up to the previous picture. Uh, the lamp is what lights up the things of God, right? And this was a completely enclosed tent, right? So if you had no lamp there, the high priest goes in there, he can see nothing, pitch dark, right? You have to have lamp to give you light, and then you can see all the things of God that are in there. How is that a picture? Who is that a picture of? All these things are pictures of the Lord Jesus. That becomes very clear as we go on. How is that a picture of the Lord Jesus? Obviously, we can go to more than one verse on this, but I picked Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. And he's talking about the things of God. The truth of God have been hidden. People can't see them. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things, what things? The revelations of God have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so Jesus is the one who dispenses the truth of God. He's the one who has the all knowledge of God, and he reveals it to us, right? And we can come and find it in the scriptures, right? It's all recorded in the Bible. 
for us. But Jesus is the word of God. He is the one who reveals the mind of God. He reveals the things of God. Right? Just like the lampstand does, the lamp lampstand stand does in the tabernacle. The next item is the showbread on top of the, the table. And uh, that's that was kind of a picture of God's provision for the nation of Israel, right? God was the one who would provide for them. And uh, so Jesus is the one who provides for us. He says this in John chapter 6. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Right? So the manna was perhaps useful for the period of time you, you were living on earth, but it didn't keep them from dying, right? It, wasn't, it didn't ultimately provide for the need. This, and he's speaking about himself, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So here Jesus offers himself to us as our eternal provision. Right? The children of Israel had the manna in the wilderness. It was good while it lasted, but it didn't provide eternal life. Jesus provides us with eternal life through the sacrifice of himself. He is the bread of life. Then we had the uh, golden censer, and we spoke about it. It was, it was really a way of offering to God something that was pleasing to him, right? The, the uh, aroma of the incense, right? That was pleasing to God. And we have this for us in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, a command to us, and walk in love, and then as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So Jesus was what God was truly pleased with. And he says that even at Jesus' baptism, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Right? He was very well pleased with his son. Jesus was that aroma to God. And then all the more so as Jesus does that ultimate act of love, when he lays himself down, he lays down his life for us. And that's the ultimate act that pleased God more than anything else. And so Jesus becomes that incense, if you would, that thing that really pleases God. Now, the nice thing about this verse is it, it invites us to participate in it, right? It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, in love as Christ has loved us. We have the opportunity through Christ living in us, to also be uh, a sweet-smelling aroma unto God, right? And, and we could say it about the other things. Jesus was the one who dispersed the light of God. He revealed the things of God to people. You know what? We can participate in that work. We have the opportunity to also share with people about God. We can be part of that dispersion of light, right? And the same thing about the provision by sharing the gospel with people, we're giving them that provision that can give them eternal life. Christ is the ultimate source, but we can be carriers of it in this world. Right? Praise God for that opportunity. Next we had the, uh, the golden pot. And if you remember, that was really a reminder to the Jews, to Israel, 
of God's provision for them in the past to give them confidence for the day. Let's say they were going through some lean times. There's a famine in, uh, in, in the land, in Bethlehem. What should we do? Should we go to, uh, to the land of, uh, of uh, forget where, uh, where uh, Ruth Moab? Should we go to the land of Moab and there find provision for us? No, God was able to provide for his people. Right? We need to turn back to God. Maybe we need a time of revival. Maybe we need prayer to God. Maybe we need to confess our sins. Maybe something is needed. But God is still able to provide. That hasn't passed. God's ability hasn't passed. In the same way, we as believers, we will go through trials right, in our lives. And, uh, and we could uh, become discouraged. We might make the wrong turn as, uh, as Naomi's uh, husband did. But, uh, but God wants us to remember his provision for us, and so we have it in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also, or with him also, freely give us all things? If, if we're willing to think back to the cross and the fact that there God provided for us, right? We... We were sinners deserving nothing, as Angelo reminded us this morning, but the judgment of God. And yet God came and with an infinite, at an infinite cost to himself, provided for us an atonement, a means to not have to go to hell, but instead go to heaven for all of eternity. So if God was so faithful, if God was so able to provide for us at that greatest time of need, can he not provide for us for the trials of today? Right. And so we have that reminder to look back to, as, as Israel had in the pot of manna. And then we had Aaron's rod that budded, and that was, again, God's way of showing Israel, this is the way to come to me. You have to come through the tabernacle, you have to come through the Levites, you have to come through the sons of Aaron, this is the way to come to me, and to show you that I'm going to give life to something that was dead. And you think of a similarity in the case of Christ. Right? Here we have the Lord Jesus laid in a tomb. He is dead. And yet God gave him life. Why? To show us that he is the mediator of the new covenant. Right? He is God's way for us to come to God. And then um, we had the tablets of the covenant. And uh, I think uh, the tablets were kind of unique in that... Uh, the writing of God in them would be very, very difficult to erase, right? Let's say God uh, you know, wrote on a piece of paper with a pen, and somebody comes and you know, smudges it a little bit. You'll have a hard time right, remembering what the covenant was. Right? So it's easily destroyed, easily erased. And so the tablets of, the, the tablet of stone is a little bit more difficult. Right? right? I mean, you can't just go with an eraser and erase the carving in the stone. Right? And so it was to really show, um, I guess, the, the uh, what would you call it? Maybe the indestructibleness of the covenant with God. Right? How, how it wasn't going to change. The covenant made with the children of Israel was, was indestructible in a sense because it was engraved in stone. Now, we know even stones can be destroyed, and actually the first set was, right? But, but there is the idea of something that's, that cannot be changed. Well, how much more so when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are the wounds in his hands, 
right? And, and the, uh, the uh, wound in his side from the spear that went through. It, it was curious to me the first time where, when I learned that in Jesus' resurrected body, there are the marks of the wounds of the cross. Why would he do that? Why does he appear in Revelation as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Who wants to look at the lamb as it was slain? Well, it's to always preserve the evidence of God's covenant with us. Right? It is indestructible. Right? A stone is destructible. The Lord Jesus is not destructible. And the Lord Jesus will for eternity have on his hands and in his side the mark of God's love for us and God's provision for us. It's never going to go away. He doesn't want us to forget. He doesn't want us to think that it can be taken away. You cannot destroy our covenant with God because it's marked in the body of the Lord Jesus. Finally, we have the uh, cherubim on top of the, uh, the uh, cover for the ark and the mercy seat, as it's called. And uh, the cherubim were the angelic beings used to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden. If you remember, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God put them outside of the garden, and then he put cherubim to prevent them from coming in. And the way I look at it is they were, in a sense, the guardians of God's holiness. God is holy. You, Adam and Eve, have sinned against God, and as a result, you cannot come into God's presence anymore. Right? It was kind of, if you would, to guard God's holiness. So here we have an interesting mixture. We have the mercy seat. Well, that's where God shows mercy. Right? That's where sinners can come. And then we have the cherubim of glory, the guardians of God's holiness, right above it, right? And uh, it made me think of Romans 3.23 through 26. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our problem. We have sinned and we fall short of God's glory, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now God lets us in. He provides for us in Christ Jesus whom God set forth, meaning he's showing him out, so everybody can see the Lord Jesus, crucified. And by the way, the word propitiation there, whom God set forth as a propitiation, is the same word in the book of Hebrews translated mercy seat. Literally what he's saying, God set forth as a mercy seat by his blood. That's what that passage says. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What, what the, this passage says, God had to be just while he justified the sinner. How can God be just? While well, justifying the sinner, you look at the Lord Jesus, and there he on the cross is suffering the penalty for our sins. And that is how God can be just, right? And justifying the sinner at the same time. So there is Jesus, the mercy seat, overshadowed by the cherubim of glory. God's holiness is perfectly preserved while he dispenses his grace to us. Praise God. Okay, so that is... 
my attempt of going into the details of the tabernacle. And uh, let's continue in our passage now in verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, that is, the tabernacle was prepared in this fashion, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. That's a mouthful. But uh, what the author basically is doing is showing us the limited effectiveness of the tabernacle. So here you have all these this beautiful things prepared. The way to God seems to be open, but turns out you need to be a priest to enter the tabernacle. Now, that's not going to get you past the second veil. To get past the second veil, you must be the high priest yourself. Only one person in the nation of Israel could walk into the presence of God. Remember, there between the cherubim above the mercy seat was the presence of God. If you want to go close to God, you have to be one man. There's just one man, the high priest. And what? You could only do it once a day, and you better come properly prepared with blood and the incense that we talked about. And what the author is saying here, this was designed to show us that this was just a picture this cannot be God's ultimate plan for people to come into his presence because it's way too limited. Right? It's just a picture. A picture that was fulfilled in Christ. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Christ is the fulfillment of this picture. He came as the high priest of the good things to come. We were worshiping the Lord this morning, remembering that we should be rejoicing. Why? Because of the good things to come. Yes, it's true. On this, in this world, we will suffer tribulations. There will be trials. Right? Life here is not perfect in a sense, even though it can in the full will of God, everything we can give thanks for. But we're looking forward for the good things to come. Right? Looking forward for heaven right? and what God has in store for us. There, that's what Christ came to provide for us. Now, it, it talks here about a couple of things that elevate Christ to a new level of effectiveness above that of the Levitical priesthood. So, in my work, uh, I have to collaborate with people that live on the other side of the world. My company is an international company. 
some of the work we do here in San Jose, some of the work we're doing in, Mal in Malaysia or, or some other parts of the world. And sometime, by way of my works, I have to pick up the phone and call somebody on the other side of the world to try to communicate. I can email. I can email to them. But sometime, a phone call will achieve more than an email, right? And uh, sometimes that's not enough. So I have a picture there. And uh, in my company, there's a room you can go to. Now, it needs to be kind of important to go there and have a good reason. But there's a room you can go to that is this conference room where literally you'll be sitting in chairs in desks, and it will look like people on the other side of the world are sitting on the desk, desk across from you. Right? It's to try to improve the level of communication, right? to make sure things really are getting across. You know what? Sometimes that's not enough. You need to go on a plane and go there. Now, I've never done it, but a lot of people in my company will you know, go there for a week or two weeks because you really need to be there and really see what they're going through and what are the challenges of the people you're working with to try to understand how they can do the work that you want them to do. Right? There's just no other way. How would I know you had to travel a lot of time for the Philippines, right? You have to sometimes just be there to really get the work done. And that's what the passage tells us about the Lord Jesus. The Levitical priests were working in a tabernacle, a tent on earth, right? Now, God was paying attention that, to what was going there, but you can maybe make it equivalent to some sort of a phone call or remote communication, right? Jesus went into heaven itself, right? That's a big point of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is right now in heaven serving us, making us right with God, fixing things, making sure the relationship is working smoothly. We are not trusting someone who is, you know, making a remote phone call to try to fix things with God, which is kind of what the Levitical priests were doing. We're putting our trust in somebody who is actually there, connected to God, right, and really making sure things happen. Right? That's our Lord, the Lord Jesus. The next thing it points out is that um, the, the priests were entering into the uh, holy place with the blood of bulls and goats, right? But Jesus came with his own blood. Now, uh, I have a picture there. Let's say it was your job to put a new, you know, pipeline in the ground. You know, we have a, I don't know, a 30-inch you know, high-pressure gas line that's actually going just a few feet from us underground. Don't worry, you're safe. Um, and somebody had to put it in, right? And the first thing you have to do, if I understand correctly, is you need to, to put a ditch in the ground, and this needs to be fairly deep, right? You don't want this pipe on the surface where someone might run into it with a shovel, right? It has to be deep underground. And so you need to, to put a good channel. I'm sorry I lost Joey here. This was really going to be a picture for him. But... Uh, Let's say somebody asked you to do this job, and they gave you a spoon, and here you go, Howard. You know, I'd like you to you know, put, a, put a pipe in the ground. You're not giving me the right tools. How can I do the job? Right? And that was, yeah, that was essentially the situation with the, the Levitical priesthood. They had the blood of bulls and goats, and the Bible is very clear that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Right? It was just a picture. They could never get the job done with that. And instead, the blood of Jesus, if you would, is like this bulldozer. He takes it away. Right? It removes it. Gets the job done. So, in way of review, we saw God's masterpiece, the tabernacle, and uh, 
the danger of missing God's masterpiece, which is what uh, the Jews, uh, rabbinical Judaism did, pray for them. Uh, we saw their detail. We tried to get ourselves to appreciate God's masterpiece, and we see that it was just a picture, and we see that Jesus is the perfect provision for it. What application can we make for ourselves today? It's interesting to me, the passage talks about the conscience a couple of times. First, in, uh, in verse In verse 9, it says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. And then, at the very end of our passage, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is the conscience? The conscience is something that God gave us, to try to keep us right with him, right? It was, if you would, the law of God engraved on our hearts. And uh, when we violate the conscience, we really did violate the law of God. And as a result, this organ called the conscience is creating pain in us to make us realize we've done something wrong. We're in trouble. We need to fix it. Uh, there's a story in the Bible of David and, and Bathsheba, David going astray and, uh, and then committing murder, really, by getting rid of her husband. Uh, but I thought I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share a story in my life. I have a picture up there. My father once brought a baby bird to our house. I was probably about Joey's age at the time. And uh, he put it in a nice little shoebox with some uh, cotton, cotton you call it? On it to, to kind of be as padding, kind of like a nest. And he uh, put a lamp over it, you have to keep them warm. So the lamp to keep the baby bird warm. And he put some, I think some water and some uh, bread, clum, bread crumbs dipped with milk or egg uh, for the bird to eat. And I was interested, right? You know, there's this bird, little creature my father brought into our house. And uh, so a little later, I think it was maybe the same evening still, maybe a day later, uh, my father was not in the house. And uh, I tried to feed the bird. I took some of the breadcrumbs and like, eat, stupid bird. <laughs> and the bird would not eat. And uh, in my frustration with the bird, I said something like, you will either eat the food I give you, or you will become food. And the bird did not eat. The bird comes. And I took the bird, and I fed it to my cat. And uh, I think my conscience bothered me right after that. But it wasn't until my father came home. And... Uh, said, where's the bird? And I told my father what I did. And I saw this look of pain on my father's face. And he said, the bird stood on my hand and ate from my hand. And I realized the pain I caused my father. 
And, uh, and that's when the conscience really got me. That's when I realized I've done something wrong. And uh, I could have told my dad, hey, dad, I'll take you out for ice cream. Don't worry about it. Right? Uh, and that's what the passage is talking about when it talks about dead works. It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, what we, we try to do when our conscience bothers us like that, we try to make it up to God somehow. We try to uh, you say, God, well, you know, I know I did something wrong, so I'll go to church this week. Or, or I'll read my Bible. Or I'll do, give some money to charity. Right? I'll do something that makes... It's the same thing as telling my dad, how about I take you out for an ice cream? God is not pleased with that. Right? It doesn't satisfy God. You know what? It doesn't make us feel any better. And it, it said this regarding the, uh, the Old Testament sacrifices too. It couldn't make the conscience perfect. And it doesn't make us feel any better when we try to offer God some good work to make up for our sin. Right? That's why he calls it good uh, dead works. Right? How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It doesn't help. What helps? What can wash my sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? There's only one thing that can remove that problem. Let me close with reciting that hymn, Nothing But the Blood by Robert Lowry. What can wash my sins away? Actually, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of works, tis all of grace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious blood that cleanses us from every sin and every spot and gives us a place in heaven. We pray for anybody here who hasn't yet come to that fountain that can wash away their sins and cleanse them from every spot, that you will help them do so. In Jesus' name, amen.